Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us all to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss well kids, behavioral and developmental health in children. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. Behavioral and developmental issues are tremendous stressors for children and families. Students who have struggled in school will likely be under additional stress over the summer and as they prepare for and even in next school year. We will explore best practices in diagnosis and treatment through a well-rounded discussion leveraging our partnership with Phoenix Children's Hospital. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Dr. Barton is a pediatric psychologist at Phoenix Children's Hospital. He serves as a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, as well as director of the Clinical Psychology Center at ASU. Dr. Barton specializes in working with children with learning and attention issues. He also has expertise in the areas of parenting difficult children and adjusting to chronic illness. First of all, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Barton. Well, thank you for the opportunity. So I know as a family physician, developmental delays can be very stressful for children and families. In fact, when they come for their physicals, it seems to preoccupy the most if there's some sort of either a behavioral issue or a developmental delay. Delayed speech development is one that comes commonly up um, during our physicals that we do in the primary care side. And it can be very difficult for parents to know when to worry or when they should seek help. Would you mind sharing some guidelines with our audience that may help them identify when it's a good time to seek medical attention to help their child? Well, sure. Um, especially for first-time parents, it's hard to know where your child should be um, developmentally and what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. So there are lots of um, applications out there uh, available through the American Academy of Pediatrics, through the Centers for Disease Control. Even the Easter Seals program has a, an ages and stages questionnaire that parents can utilize to get a handle on uh, what their child should be doing. But it's important to remember that there's wide variability in uh, when children hit those developmental milestones. So these kind of checklists, I think, are uh, uh, initial information gathering devices and uh, probably things to take into the pediatrician to, to confer with. Is there a way to catch up over the summer, over breaks, over the weekend, um, to try to accelerate themselves towards those milestones, or once behind, always behind? We know that most kids lose some of their uh, achievement skills over the summer, and if there are um, good summer programs that have evidence-based instructional approaches that are applied to kids who attend regularly, and those uh, instructional approaches are applied to the needs that the kids have, then those kids can, it's not a guarantee, uh, but may uh, likely catch uh, some benefit from those summer programs. For these kiddos, though, that do have a developmental delay or 
feel like they have a learning disability, sometimes they are awfully stigmatized and they certainly feel, at least I've heard them come in feeling or referring to themselves as stupid or crazy. And unfortunately, sometimes they haven't always been through the best treatment, even in, in the school setting. So how do you combat this with your kiddos and their families and help them understand that you know, it's not their fault? There could even be an underlying medical cause for what they're, what they're going through? Well, I uh, like the approach taken by Mel Levine, a developmental pediatrician, who talked about people having all kinds of minds. You know, we've got all kinds of minds. Uh, take me, for example. Um, my kind of mind is really good at words and knowing how people think and feel. I'm average at most stuff, but I'm really not very good at math or being able to fix things terrible at that stuff. And your kind of mind is good at these things, and perhaps that's something that that child has told me or their parents have told me or results from uh, the evaluation that we've done. You're average at lots of stuff. Your kind of mind is not so good at these things. So try to be very concrete, uh, limit them to three. And so for a kid who is having difficulty with reading, I might say, your kind of mind has trouble putting sounds to these things we call letters, squiggles on the pages. Uh, for an anxious child, I might say, you know, your kind of, of mind is very sensitive uh, to danger, but it sends off some false alarms. Yeah, I like that idea mm -hmm. of naming the issue. And if you're able to communicate with the, the child that there is an issue and that others have experienced it and we can name it, we can actually move forward from there. Uh, that being said, it, you have all this experience. You have the exposure to children who are um, in need of some support. How can parents involve the school and teachers and other support networks around them to provide the best possible resources for their child? So they come to you, they get some advice, but now they have to go back into the real world. What types of conversations do you have with the parents to build that support network for their kids? Well, for the first thing is how are you going to talk with your child's teacher uh, about your child? And if you know some of the, uh, their strengths and weaknesses, how do you communicate that information? Uh, so it might be a copy of my report if we've, if we've done an evaluation. It might be um, having the previous year's teacher talk to uh, next year's teacher and say, these are the strengths and weaknesses and these are the approaches we took in the classroom, which were were helpful. It's probably a good idea to figure out how uh, we are going to communicate, parent and teacher. Are you going to send me uh, notes home every day, every week, every month? Uh, when's a good time for me to check in with you? Uh, what's your school's portal? Uh, can we get online and see what the assignments are and if that, if that book report was turned in? And then it might be good to acquaint oneself with uh, the school counselor or the student support team um, if there is a, a well-documented uh, or a behavioral problem, uh, perhaps ADHD, be talking with uh, those professionals about 504 plans or individual education plans that um, would be developed and monitored carefully, hopefully, uh, by both the, the school personnel and the parent. So in the ideal situation, it's really an engagement between the child, their family, and the school resources so that everyone's working together towards a common 
a common goal of providing the resources for that child. Absolutely. Excellent. And you've already done a pretty good job sort of illustrating some of the resources, but for parents who might be listening who really just don't even know where to start, could you once again highlight some of those first places to turn resources for the listeners? Well, I would hope that parents would feel comfortable to, to discuss these concerns with someone who knows their child uh, very well, such as their pediatrician. Um, in addition to that excellent resource, uh, being from Phoenix Children's Hospital, I'm a, a big consumer of information from the EMILY Center. A wonderful resource for uh, parents, professionals, and kids. And uh, parents and kids that speak Spanish. Uh, there are uh, lots of information on the internet. So I like the Academy of uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, um, Division 53 of the American Psychological Association, which is called Effective Child Therapy. Lots of wonderful information on there about conditions, concerns, interventions, and how to get evidence-based therapy for that child. Um, the Arizona Department of Education Office of Exceptional Student Services is another resource. Now, this has been wonderful to hear about the ways in which we can make sure that all kids are provided the opportunities that they need to be successful and, and become those individuals that they're destined to become. So thank you so much, Dr. Barton. It's really been a pleasure having you. I wish we could continue the conversation. Uh, and thanks for joining us tonight. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We are very excited to continue our discussion of Well Kids with Dr. Vinny Tulani. Dr. Tulani is Section Chief of Adolescent Medicine at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and he is one of only a handful of specialists in Arizona. Dr. Tulani also specializes in working with gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender youth, including those seeking gender affirmation therapies. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here to continue this conversation about well kids, primarily, or to at least to start off on uh, the recognition that children are not immune to stress or anxiety, that the same stress and anxiety that their parents are feeling will trickle down, and that for many children, school, either ending school or restarting school, is going to be a social stress. Um, can you share some of the more common sources of stress and anxiety in children these days, so to speak, um, specifically the ones that parents may not be acutely aware of? Yeah, you know, th thanks for having me. I, I think we really recognize that stress is a universal experience, and one way to think about stress is one's ability to deal with what the demands that are placed on them. And we know that back-to-school time can be a stressful time for children. It can be a stressful, stressful time for adolescents. There was actually a study that was done by the American Psychological Association about three years back looking at back-to-school stress and what are the most common stressors that affect children and teenagers. The major stress really that young people report are school-related and how they keep up with schoolwork. In, in my practice, I work with many young people who come in just seemingly overwhelmed. The demands of school can be so overwhelming for, for children and for teenagers that sometimes keeping up can be very difficult. Oftentimes they come to me feeling like they don't really have time to pop off and, 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 and relax and, and have time for creative play when they get home. The other stressor is what happens outside of school. Extracurricular activities can really take significant demands on, on the times of young people. Now, these are not just external factors. There are also internal drivers to this stress, and that's expectations. 
Expectations are really, really important. Expectations can help achievement. Expectations can help young people become motivated. But, you know, too much of a good thing can also be harmful. And when I talk to children, when I talk to adolescents, I talk to them about how we manage expectations. How do we make sure that this quality, pro-social qualities, obsessional traits, traits that can somehow be helpful and adaptive in the, in the workplace, you know, perfectionistic traits which can be helpful in the workplace and can foster success, how they tame them. The other thing that really has come up in conversations with teenagers about back-to-school stress has to do with social factors. We know that fitting in, finding your own group, and in-groups, and out-groups, and tribes are all part of adolescent culture. And young people talk about this particular stress as they return to school. This stress is especially profound for the transgender and gender diverse young people I work with. You know, when I, over the summer, I've had the pleasure of connecting with many of my patients. How are things going? Ah, oh, I feel so much better. I've, you know, my stress is down because school is out. Going back to school can be a profoundly stressful time for children and adolescents who don't necessarily fit in into school norms. For many of our children, the, the experience of, of social anxiety when your external appearance does not match your inner experience of gender can be especially, especially difficult. Many of the young people I work with cannot live up to that stress. They end up being homeschooled or they end up missing school. And this is where inclusive policies and affirming policies in our schools can really make a difference in terms of academic success for our gender diverse and, and, and different children. The last thing that, that I think really stands out, just looking at what are the sources of stress for kids, physical appearance, their appearance matters. And we know that oftentimes over summers, you know, kids grow, things change. They, you know, they come back to school as somewhat, you know, looking different than might have been. But that theme of, of wanting acceptance, the theme of, of needing to be comfortable and accepted is, is, is very profound for kids. You know, how they show up on that first day of school. Do they, are, they, are they dressed cool? And will they be part of the tribe? Will they be welcomed as members of the tribe or are sources of stress for kids? That's, that's great, and I think that you've identified a lot of things that can be particularly stressful and stressors, as well as some really great coping strategies for the, the kids and the parents. Can you help us kind of let our listeners know when we've crossed that line, like you said, with some normal expectations and being driven versus this is unhealthy now and I need to recognize that there might be an issue with my child? Maybe seek some help? In terms of when, when might you be dealing with behaviors, when might you be dealing with concerns that might warrant attention, let's take a step back and ask, well, how does stress present in, in children and teenagers? It can present in behavioral ways through, you know, mood swings or irritability or anger or being short or acting out. It can present with sleep difficulties. It can present with symptoms of anxiety, of emotional withdrawal, of isolation. It can present as physical symptoms. It can present as headaches and stomach aches and somatic complaints. Um, it can also present with cognitive changes, with a decline in academic performance, with difficulty in concentration. And when you think about the nature of stress, you know, young people are also incredibly resilient. Young people have a remarkable ability to deal with the things that they have to deal with. They, they, they have innate strengths. And we have to think of when stress might be a problem as a condition when one's innate strengths are, are overwhelmed. And what might that look like when these symptoms are either persistent or worsening, 
Second, when you're looking at stress manifested as anxiety or negatively impacting mood. And lastly, emphasizing function. When stress begins to negatively impact a young person's life at home, at school, and, in, and with their peers, these are important domains of function. And these are signs that, that a child or an, or an adolescent might warrant some help and attention. Yeah, when I listen to you, it all makes sense in the concept or the, the framework of my own children. And it's easy as we sit here in this room where it's a controlled environment, very low stress, and we think about what is uh, available to us. Um, but then I think about my own stresses that I'm trying to cope with while my child has stresses. And so if the parent is perfectly calm, then it may be easier to deal with stress. But when both parties are stressed, how does the parent listen? How does the parent observe when there's perhaps the parent is at their own limits of their own coping. Absolutely. You raise a very important point that, that as we adults deal with our own stresses, we model for our children how to respond to stress. And you know, stress never really goes away. I tell my patients that. I tell my young people that. Today's making the grade and making friends and keeping your social circle is tomorrow's holding a job, maybe keeping a family together. The there will always be stresses. And the task is to prepare young people to not be good 14, 15 year olds, but to prepare them for life. And we adults model, we model coping behaviors for the children and, 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 and youth that we care for. And I think part of that is also once we've recognized that, knowing that it is, it's a whole, it's often a whole family process. It isn't just the child's issue. It becomes everybody's all hands on deck and we're in this together as and supportive in that environment as well. And I think we illustrate that not just by our actions, but by supporting the entire therapy and being involved. So that's great. I'm curious, and we're going to switch gears just a little bit. Sometimes I feel like with adolescents, you know, when they come in to me as a primary care physician, it's almost like pulling teeth to sometimes get them to want to open up and earn that trust. And we, we work hard on that, I think, as, as physicians. How do you foster that? And how do you, how do you navigate those waters with your patients to make them feel most comfortable with you? In, in the typical five or ten minute period that you might be assigned to see them. Right, I, I call it the kind of the bond and boot where I kind of bond with everyone and try to gain rapport with the whole unit and then I always have my all right mom or all right dad I'm going to ask you to step out for a few minutes because I do this with everybody but I'm wondering just for maybe some of our listeners who might be in training or med students or you know, future practitioners, what is a good strategy or what would you recommend? I'm going to share a strategy my parents taught me when they taught me how to cross the street. Stop, look, and listen. Stop. In our busy practices, oftentimes we're not mindful. We're not mindful. We go from patient to patient. Our, in our classrooms, our, our teachers go from students to student. The task is to meet young people wholly, fully, and with intention. Wholly, fully, and with intention. And when you do so, you communicate importance. And you com young people perceive this. Young people are aware of this. And I'm really a big fan of mindfulness. Yeah, so being awesome. present is mm -hmm. critical, and the same would apply in my situation where I said if parent is stressed and the child is stressed, let's all stop, take inventory, look, and then listen. Look, observe, observe nonverbal cues, observe how you make young people comfortable in this space, being observant to how your words may or may not impact young people, reflecting and, and, and really speaking to that. Listening is listening with intention. Any other uh, suggestions on how kids can and parents can prepare themselves for a successful start to the, the school year? 
when young people perceive or, or experience stress, I think it's important to validate that feeling, to recognize that stress is a universal experience. And sometimes the concerns of young people might seem trivial to us adults. They're worried about their friends. They're worried about their clothes. They're worried about Saturday. They might seem trivial and trite in relation to the things that concern us adults, but it's important to validate those feelings because that experience is real. And then really being able to work with young people to identify what are, the, what are some strategies that they might use to adaptively and, and, and positively deal with stress. You know, oftentimes I'm called to work with young people that might be struggling academically or might be struggling with anxiety. And sometimes our approach in healthcare and our approach in medicine is to fix the individual when oftentimes what you need to do is fix the situation. Mm -hmm. I work with parents around really critically evaluating what's on that young person's plate. Maybe you took two AP classes too many. Maybe you have too much on your plate. For my young patients, for example, with ADHD, and they come back saying, no, my medications aren't working, and things aren't working, and things are broken. Sometimes it's about critically appraising what is on your plate, and how do these match up with, with, with your abilities and, and what your what, what your true capabilities are. Recognizing, too, that part of coping, critical pieces of coping, is self-care, rest, nutrition, right, um, exercise, and these, these are things that take time. You, young people need to carve space out, for their, out of their day to have these positive experiences. The last thing I, I also really sort of advise, especially when it comes to matters that pertain to self-concept, Right, that pertain to self-esteem, that, that pertain to how young people perceive themselves to be members of in-groups and out-groups. I always talk to young people about how we talk to ourselves. And we talk to ourselves with scripts that either bring us up or with scripts that bring us down. For young people to critically examine their scripts, especially when the source of stress is internal, when the source of stress relates to their systems of self-appraisal and not necessarily to external and, and extrinsic factors. More nuggets. I love it. <laughs> I'm jotting down here. We try to fix the individual. We should address the situation. I love that. It's a great nugget for anyone listening. Um, Another question, more of a personal one. Clearly, your passion for adolescent health is contagious. I'm particularly interested in, and I know you're also very passionate about serving the LGBTQ community, and how are you drawn to serve this vulnerable population? You know, I am, I am LGBTQ myself. I, I, I came out, you know, in my 30s, but I, I really bring lessons from my own wounding to this work. Mm -hmm. I think of my experience growing up in, in, in a very conservative culture in Asia. I think back to how my parents could have benefited from, from having a pediatrician and a healthcare provider that could help them make sense of my experience. And I think to myself, how can I be the pediatrician, the healthcare provider that I wish I had growing up? That's awesome. Yeah, it's simple. I mean, we, we learn a lot in this podcast about the different uh, life experiences that each of the physicians bring um, and any healthcare provider brings in order to be able to better connect with their patients so that they can stop, they can observe, and they can listen to what needs the patient brings and what the situation is. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your passions about uh, childhood and wellness mm -hmm. and all these knowledge nuggets. Um, we have to say goodbye to you and we will continue our podcast in a minute thank you thank you very much 
Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affair Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We're joined by Randall Riccardi. Dr. Riccardi is program director of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Phoenix Children's Hospital. He is a psychiatrist as well as a child and adolescent psychiatry specialist. We're also pleased to welcome Funda Bacini. Dr. Bacini is the Associate Program Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program at Phoenix Children's Hospital. She is also Medical Director of the Inpatient Psychiatry Unit at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Dr. Bacini specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Riccardi. Yes. My <laughs> wife and I, so great to have you here. My wife Thank and you. I Thanks for having me. Um, received great parenting advice at one point. Uh, we were told that when our three boys had a conflict, um, more like an internal struggle, that they, we should consider HALT, and HALT stood for whether or not they were hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And most of those are feelings that we can readily address with food or sleep or engagement. How can parents recognize when their kids are experiencing something that is outside of the realm of what the parents can fix? Well, being a father, I think you're probably very well versed in reading your child and their behavior. So I've learned that by trusting what the parents' perceptions or observations are of the child, they're pretty accurate. And so you would know your child who's hungry as they point to the McDonald's sign when you're driving down the street, or when they're tired and they're dozing off in the back seat of the car. I think it's when the parent becomes confused and will come to us and say, I don't understand this child. I don't, something's different with them. They've changed. And it's from that point that the, the parent is confused and seek us out to see if we have more explanations or answers as to what may be happening with, that, with their child. But I think for the most part, parents are pretty good at being able to read their child and know what's going on with them. We do get uh, familiar with those events that are happening around us and when they change they are striking and we have to have the courage to then seek out that particular care. Right. And I think as a physician I always put a lot of stock in what the parents are telling me because of that because we know that they're observing their kiddos day in and day out and um, comparing and looking at other children, so I think that's great advice. Can you let us know, um, Dr. Riccardi, what changes you've seen over the years in the types of stressors and issues that our kiddos are coping with? Oh, I think I think as you look at the impact of a, a couple things, one would be social media, and you look at how early kids are able to pick up an electronic device and use it. And I've had parents say, you know, when I need something figured out, I just give it to my five-year-old and they're able to figure out and show me what to do with it. So I think that exposure has in some ways kind of broadened their experiences, but in some ways has added stress. So we see kids coming to us who have had cyberbullying, for example, 
or bullying in the classroom or other experiences on electronic media that has really changed in terms of their coping strategies and has added a level of stress. Some of the children don't want to tell their parents about it because they're afraid the parents going to step in and want to go to school and fix it and they're like no that's just going to make things worse and so they're a little bit more secretive about what's happening. I think there's more peer pressures about things. Kids are growing up so much earlier and because of that media exposure they learn things much earlier than I probably did and as a result there's social pressures that are put on them around that as well. So I mean there's a variety of things that are happening even when we look at divorce rate on blended families. I mean there's a lot of things that happen that are pressures in a child's life and um, I think social media is probably a, a big a big component contributor to that. Another piece of that, I think, is, you know, humans need connection. So as we evolved as humans, there is something that happens physiologically about sitting with a person and looking at them and talking to them and a lot of nonverbal communication that happens. And so one of the things that's occurring is that a lot of young people are missing out on that. So much of their communication is done through Snapchat and Instagram and texting each other. But those, I always tell kids, those aren't your friends. If you only speak to someone through a video game, that doesn't count. It doesn't have the same impact in your brain. So in some ways, we are a lot more connected than we used to be, but in other ways, we've lost that human component. And that's a big loss, I think. Have you heard from your kids where they'll say, I've had so many likes on a particular post Yes. And, and I mean, I think and it, when they don't get a, a certain number of likes, I mean, it's devastating to them. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's depressing, from people that yeah. they may not even know. I mean, I think it's just fascinating. There's also a degree of immediate need for gratification. So my kids are little. They're seven, five, and two. But they don't understand the concept of not having information immediately. Mm-hmm. If they ask me a question and I don't know, they will say, ask Siri. Google it. And then I try to explain the Dewey Decimal System and the things that I had to go through to get. And they're just like, what? Like, that's crazy. What? You know, so they want everything right away. And as they get older, I think we see that mentality as well. Um, And it's difficult. Their frustration tolerance is lower. So as we talk about digital aspects, there's a difference between seeking out content and content being delivered to you. So content being delivered through advertisements or ill-advised links or what have you. And so have you seen that and counseled parents on how to engage in conversations about uh, exceeding your parental restrictions on digital media? Yeah, we, we've seen children carrying on relationships and conversations with people who they think are well known to them on the other side and in reality it can be somebody posing as a peer and when parents actually begin to get into their histories or look at their phones or look at their their um, footprints you know so to speak they're surprised and so we encourage parents to have an active role and to have open discussions there's always a fear on the part of that parent that they're going to be invading privacy But, you know, you have to go back and it's still your child and you're still the parent and you still need to be informed about what they're doing. 
And I think there's a fine line between letting somebody have privacy and then letting somebody kind of run in a direction that can get them into trouble eventually. Right. Would that fall into the category of coping skills? We want to know mm -hmm. if there are coping skills that either parents can have to be better parents or children to have coping skills for the stresses and anxieties in their life. So when we talk about coping skills, what we're referencing are ways to deal with stress um, and how to handle that stress so it doesn't become overwhelming to your system. And so coping skills wouldn't really help parents be better parents, aside from the fact that if you can feel yourself getting overwhelmed, you know, we're child psychiatrists, so we're supposed to be perfect parents, right? And <laughs> never yell. And when I tell my friends stories about, oh no, I totally freaked out and yelled at Bodhi, they say like, oh my God, I'm so relieved. Like, I'm glad you do that. So the way coping skills help, help us as parents is to be able to say, I'm getting overwhelmed and I'm gonna take a break. And this is what I'm gonna do to take care of myself. I'm gonna listen to me music for five minutes or I'm gonna go on a walk and so that helps you calm down and it models for your child like hey people get upset getting upset is okay and this is how you deal with it I wanted to just back that up for the for the child as well so what are the best coping mechanisms or skills for the child who might be going through some of these stressors. So the research shows that kids self-esteem goes down um, after spending 15 or 20 minutes on social media. So that happens anyway. What you really want to do is focus on laying the groundwork for them developing self-esteem in areas outside of social media. It's the, the buttressing around the child and their social supports and the parents that really help prevent that from becoming an overwhelming stressor. But don't you think it's more than just self-esteem? Don't you think it's kind of resilience as well? that what they're learning through this process is mm -hmm. how to be resilient in the face of stressors or in the face of adversity, of what do I like really rely on? And self-esteem mm -hmm. may be one of those things, mm -hmm. but you build on resilience in some respects around your support network, your family, your community, your education system, sometimes organized activities, you know, really give that sense of self mm -hmm. and self-esteem and I think builds resilience. Mm -hmm. I really like the way the conversation's going in terms of health and mental uh, centering, being able to uh, have individuals be the person that they want to be, but there are conditions where the individual may exceed their own coping strategies and require um, more direct intervention through either a prescription or an inpatient setting and there's stigma associated with that mm -hmm. and there's obviously not a want to post that online and to hide that from individuals how can or, or what are the thought processes in today's child psychiatry about inpatient uh, hospitalizations that may be necessary or even prescriptions to deal with some of the um, stresses and anxieties that get beyond coping strategies well it's interesting we were talking along those lines today when we were in your office about when is that threshold when kids need medication and how do we handle that so 
Inpatient is still the most acute level of care. So in order to be inpatient, usually outpatient services have been tried to some extent. You have to be a danger to yourself, so suicidal, um, or a acute danger to others um, to be on the inpatient unit. So ours, especially at PCH, is 12 and under. Um, so a lot has had to go wrong <laughs> before we put a kid that age. But if you're worried about safety in your child, I would take them to an emergency room. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of stigma still about mental illness. Um, I think it's getting less so um, than maybe 20, 30 years ago. I try to explain it to parents in a medical model. I think a lot of times what we find is people think when people are depressed or anxious, like, oh, just buck up, mm -hmm. walk it off, what's the problem? Because they don't see it as this organic disorder. So I use the diabetes model mm -hmm. when I'm explaining it to parents. So if I have a child that's depressed, I'll say, you know, when you have diabetes, your body doesn't make enough insulin or it doesn't respond in the right way to insulin. So we have to give you medicine or insulin to make up for that deficit. And with type 2 diabetes, you can change a lot of lifestyle factors so that maybe one day you don't have to be on medicine anymore, but you need this in the meantime. And it's the same with depression, right? So you can learn coping skills, you can go to therapy, you can make changes in your life that maybe you don't have to be on medication forever, but just like in diabetes, you don't have enough insulin, you don't have enough serotonin, and that's something that we we have to fix with medicine and it's so interesting because I use the same analogy as a primary care doctor because I, f I say that you know if you had diabetes or high blood pressure I wouldn't not treat that so why would I ignore you from the neck up it doesn't make you know it's, it's always about I think that's so big and destigmatizing so that's that's great yeah and I find sometimes that parents want to kind of come in and maybe have an agenda of wanting medication and, and many times it's an indication that you know there is a need for this medicine for depression or for severe anxiety. But, you know, there's also a need for therapy and for helping parents learn some skills that are important too in the overall treatment plan of that child. So even though somebody may come into the inpatient unit for an acute need, I mean, treatment really goes far beyond that and far beyond just medication as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important component for some people to look at that time investment of what it means to like see a therapist on a regular basis and do that work that's necessary in, in terms of either looking at cognitive changes or putting together a behavioral plan that has to be carried out at home that a parent commits to and, and also the child and sometimes it involves schools and an extended family as well who may be involved in the care of that child. It's a little bit all hands on deck. A lot of our parents are asking us especially during the summer about things like drug holidays could you maybe, I know it's shifting gears a little bit, but maybe speak to that a little bit and maybe the evidence and whether or not you're recommending that currently with your populations? So it depends on the medicine. Um, so if you have a 16-year-old that has a bipolar disorder or has, said, has had several major depressive episodes, I wouldn't take them off of their medication for the summer. Um, if you have a child with ADHD mm -hmm. and 
they are just going to be swimming and playing outside and you can deal with and they can deal with how they are off their medications when they don't have to be sitting in a classroom, then I think it's a good thing to do. Um, if you can't or they can't deal with that, then I would keep them on it. Mm -hmm. well, I think there are some children that when we look at their growth curves and you're seeing like height, weight being impacted, probably more that population that we would consider maybe giving a drug holiday in the mm -hmm. summer. But I agree with you. I, going back and looking, I think safety is always the big issue. When we're dealing with that inattentive subtype of ADHD, and you're really using it to help with the classroom and to help with completing work in a more timely way and making sure we don't have careless mistakes and errors, then I think giving a holiday may be in order to do. You know, because when we look at some of the ADHD children who are off meds, there's a difference in terms of behavior behavior sometimes compared to their peers. And they'll be aware of it. They're aware that other people are treating them differently or make comments about them. And self-esteem is such a, an important component, as you pointed out earlier, that we want to preserve that. And so by having somebody on meds, if it means that we have better social skills, better social involvement, and a better peer experience, then I don't I err on that side more than I would worry about stigma of being on a medicine. So kind of reassurance case-by-case case basis and whatever's best for the home environment and the child and there's no right or wrong or mm -hmm. dangerous it's just depends on the the individual patient so mm -hmm. great as physicians are you getting the support you need through the schools so um Governor Ducey and his wife have expressed a dedication to making Arizona a trauma-informed state and being more aware um, of mental health. They've been working with Dr. Bruce Perry, who's done a lot of the research on early childhood trauma and brain development. So I think in some ways we are trying to get there. PCH has a Coles Mindful Me, which is a grant-driven program in which we have people that go out to the schools and talk to teachers about trauma-informed care in the classroom and how to deal with those kids. Arizona is almost always in the top 10 for the funding of mm -hmm. mental health. We are 49th and 50th in the delivery of health care services mm -hmm. for children and then for adults. So we fund it, we just don't deliver services very well. So we do often find that it's difficult to get our patients what they need in terms of supports. Yes, the system is fragmented to some extent. I mean, there's a shortage of child psychiatrists, which is one of the reasons why PCH um, undertook that initiative to start a child fellowship program there, just because that need is not being met in this country. And so as a result, there's a large number of children who just don't have access to psychiatry, mental health services. And when you look at the fragmentation that's there, it is a challenge for families. Many of them more than stigma, I think, face frustration with being able to secure appointments and being able to follow through. And the system is very convoluted in terms of how you make referrals and how you get in to see somebody. And they frankly kind of get frustrated and give up. And so I think we need a better system to help navigate mm -hmm. and move people because as we reduce stigma, we, what we haven't done is made it easier for them to be able to access the care. Excellent. 
unfortunately, although I could go on and we would love to talk more, we are at the end of our time. But thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Katie, what a wonderful episode again on Well Kids and what we can do to prepare them for a a bright future. Um, What I primarily took away from it is we can't just expect our kids to grow out of it, that if there are struggles in their life, if there are challenges that they're facing, that there are resources out there for the parents, the community to assist. Absolutely. I I loved how Dr. Chulani even kind of said the thing is stress continues. And so the stressors our youth face are different than the stressors we face as adults. But nevertheless, these are stressors. So giving them coping skills, which all of our guests tonight kind of shared some great coping strategies with us and tools that they need for success was definitely a theme. And I I enjoyed um, thinking about that there's all different tools, right? And some of it's coping as far as mindfulness was brought up by several of our guests, but sometimes it might be medication. Sometimes it's everything, including therapy. I love that as well. There was a list that Dr. Chulani gave us about all the physical manifestations of stress. And if we can recognize when those are bubbling up, we can take his crossing the street advice to stop, look, and listen in order to be able to take a minute, which also ties into what Dr. Riccardi and Dr. Piccini were talking about in the sense that these children are overwhelmed mm-hmm. and that social media is coming at a mile a minute. And in that case, potentially stopping taking inventory is the approach to move forward. I, I agree. And I think that I'm, I'm glad they touched upon the social media that our, our youth are so, they're just inundated with. Uh, and coping strategies in that arena, since it's a little different than the stressors we grew up with, I think was an important um, important piece. Yeah. And both of us being parents, we also learned very clearly mm-hmm. from all of our guests that we need to model the behavior we want our children to be. We can't rely on the teachers doing it or their coaches or what have you. It takes the entire community. And it's not just the individual and what they have internally, but the external community that is putting on expectations and stresses that need to be controlled. I think anyone listening who maybe is going to be a future provider or is a provider could take a lot from that, what you already brought up to stop, stop, look and listen, listening wholly, fully and with intention. Um, And I think that tied into a little bit about trying to, as we're fixers, um, not just as, but a lot of us want to fix problems, but sometimes we're trying to fix the individual instead of maybe addressing the situation that might be causing that that stress. So I thought that was a great nugget as well. Yeah. That system of care that is talked about where uh, we want to make sure that the parents recognize the opportunity that pediatricians might have, Mm -hmm. that the resource providers in schools might have, that uh, even their friends might be able to provide that network that's necessary for them to be successful. And that's with that holistic care, whole person. Destigmatizing goes along with a lot of our, our our episodes yeah. in general, and and I and I think that that's something important for us to continue to strive for. Yeah, and based on the vast experience, the decades that we we spoke with tonight, it's not just an isolated individual here or there. This is a, I wouldn't say pervasive, but this is a prevalent type of situation where others are going through it, and so there are those tools that uh, our listeners can go seek out and use to provide care as well as receive care. And there's no there's no wrong kind of mind. I love I love Dr. Barton saying that it's just different kinds of mind and figuring out how to best service our populations in need. Unquestionably, we'd love to continue to talk with you and yes. more guests and our guests more. But unfortunately, our time is up for today. Left shits out like a well functioning GI. Bright out like a good night's sleep. 
The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license.